Nehemiah chapter 12. As you'll hear in a moment, Nehemiah 12 feels like it should be the end of our story. Feels like it should be the end of this story that we spent many weeks and months in. This story that has centered around rebuilding. Rebuilding not just the wall, not just the temple, not just worship, but a people. A people that are set apart for God. But we'll see next week as we conclude our study that this is not the end of the story. You're going to wish it was, but it's not the end of the story. Those of you who were here last week remember that last week we were in chapter 10. Now we're in chapter 12. Uh, That's not because we have skipped chapter 11 altogether, but you'll remember, I know because you all remember my sermons perfectly, that we looked at chapter 11 when we looked at chapter 7. We looked at the two chapters together, that extensive list of those who repopulated the city of Jerusalem. That's chapter 11. So today we turn to to chapter 12. Before I read it, there's a quote I want you to hear, a quote I read about the state of man today. It says this, modern man worships his work, works at his play, and plays at his worship. Modern man worships his work, works at his play, and plays at his worship. Today, the topic before us is the topic of worship. That's what God's Word speaks to us about today, and He he does so in such a way that I hope will reorient you to the significance and the value of worship, maybe challenging some of the practice of your worship. And certainly, I hope, will reignite your passion for worship. The Scriptures, of course, present worship to us as something that encompasses all of life. We give of ourselves because God is worthy. Romans 12.1, we looked at it last week briefly. The transforming of our minds, our, our lack of conformity to the world, the presentation of our bodies as living sacrifices. This is all worship. It's all an act of worship. And yet today we are reminded there's a clear calling for us as God's people throughout the Scriptures that though we worship God in all of life as we submit ourselves to Him and to His will and to His Word, we're also called to do this. Specifically, corporately gather and praise and celebrate. And that's what Nehemiah 12 reminds us of this morning. So listen as I read Nehemiah chapter 12, the whole chapter, it's a lengthy reading, bear with me. Again, lots of names that I will no doubt mispronounce, but you'll never know. Uh, Listen as I read, this is God's word. Nehemiah chapter 12, these are the priests and the Levites who came up with Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Jeshua, Sarea. Jeremiah, Ezra, Amariah, Maluk, Hattush, 
Shechaniah, Rahum, Merimoth, Idu, Ginnathoi, Abijah, Mijamin, Maadiah, Bilga, Shemaiah, Joyarib, Jedea, Salu, Amuk, Hilkiah, Jedea. These were the chiefs of the priests and of their brothers in the days of Jeshua. And the Levites, Jeshua, Binui, Kadmiel, Sherebiah, Judah, Mataniah, who with his brothers was in charge of the songs of thanksgiving, and Bakbukiah, and Uni, and their brothers stood opposite them in the service. And Jeshua was the father of Joachim, and Joachim the father of Eliashib, and Eliashib the father of Joiada, and Joiada the father of Jonathan, and Jonathan the father of Jadua. And in the days of Joachim were priests, heads of fathers' houses of Sereah, Mereah, of Jeremiah, Hananiah, of Ezra, Meshalem, of Amariah, Jehoiannan, of Malukai, Jonathan, of Shebaniah, Joseph, of Harim, Adna, of Mereoth, Helkai, of Edu, Zechariah, of Ginnathon, Meshalem, of Abijah, Zikri, of Miniamin, of Moadiah, Piltai, of Biggai, Shemuai, of Shemaiah, Jehanathan, of Joyarib, Matanai, of Jedea, Uzai, of Salai, Kalai, of Amak, Eber, of Hilkiah, Hashabiah, of Jedea, Nethanel. In the days of Eliashib, Joyada, Joihanan, and Jadua, the Levites were recorded as heads of fathers' houses. So too were the priests in the reign of Darius the Persian. As for the sons of Levi, their heads of fathers' houses were written in the book of the Chronicles until the days of Johanan, the son of Eliashib. And the chiefs, the chiefs of the Levites, Hashabiah, Sherebiah, and Jeshua, son of Kadmiel, with their brothers who stood opposite them to praise and to give thanks, according to the commandment of David, the man of God. Watch by watch, Mataniah, Bakbukiah, Obadiah, Meshulam, Talman, and Akub were gatekeepers standing guard at the storehouses of the gates. These were in the days of Joachim, the son of Jeshua, son of Josadak, and in the days of Nehemiah, the governor, and of Ezra, the priest and scribe. And at the dedication of the wall of Jerusalem, they sought the Levites in all their places to bring them to Jerusalem to celebrate the dedication with gladness, with thanksgivings, and with singing, with cymbals, harps, and lyres. And all the sons of the singers gathered together from the district surrounding Jerusalem and from the villages of the Netophathalites, also from Beth Gilgal and from the region of Geba and Asmaveth. For the singers had built for themselves villages around Jerusalem, and the priests and the Levites purified themselves, and they purified the people and the gates and the wall. Then I brought the leaders of Judah up onto the wall and appointed two great choirs that gave thanks. One went to the south on the wall to the dung gate, and after them went Hoshea 
and half of the leaders of Judah, and Azariah, Ezra, Meshullam, Judah, Benjamin, Shemaiah, and Jeremiah, and certain of the priest's sons with trumpets, Zechariah, the son of Jonathan, son of Shemaiah, son of Mataniah, son of Micaiah, son of Zechur, son of Asaph, and his relatives, Shemaiah, Azarel, Milale, Gilale, Ma'e, Nethanel, Judah, and Hanani, with the musical instruments of David, the man of God, and Ezra the scribe went before them. At the fountain gate they went up straight before them by the stairs of the city of David, at the ascent of the wall above the house of David to the water gate on the east. The other choir of those who gave thanks went to the north, and I followed them with half of the people on the wall above the tower of the ovens to the broad wall, and above the gate of Ephraim, and by the gate of Yeshana, and by the fish gate and the tower of Hananel, and the tower of the hundred to the sheep gate, and they came to a halt at the gate of the guard. So both choirs of those who gave thanks stood in the house of God, and I and half of the officials with me, and the priest of Eliakim, Maaseah, Miniamin, Micaiah, Eloinai, Zechariah, and Hanani with trumpets, and Maaseah, Shemaiah, Eleazar, Uzi, Jehoianan, Malkijah, Elam, and Ezer. And the singers sang with Jezrahiah as their leader. And they offered great sacrifices that day and rejoiced. For God had made them rejoice with great joy. The women and the children also rejoiced. And the joy of Jerusalem was heard far away. On that day there were appointed men over the storerooms, the contributions, the first fruits, and the tithes to gather them into the portions required by the law for the priests and for the Levites according to the field of the towns. For Judah rejoiced over the priests and the Levites who ministered, and they performed the service of their God and the service of purification, as did the singers and the gatekeepers according to the command of David and his son Solomon. For long ago in the days of David and Asaph, there were directors of the singers, and there were songs of praise and thanksgiving to God and all Israel in the days of Zerubbabel. And in the days of Nehemiah gave the daily portions for the singers and the gatekeepers. And they set apart that which was for the Levites. And the Levites set apart that which was for the sons of Aaron. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks for bearing with me uh, in that lengthy reading of God's Word. As we think about Nehemiah chapter 12, you may think, after reading that lengthy passage filled with a lot of names, what possibly could we learn from Nehemiah chapter 12? What truth could there be for us here? Well, there's one truth that I want us to meditate on. One truth this morning, one truth that I want to unpack in four different ways. And so those of you children who have the kids' bulletin before you can see that there's one truth and then four different sub-points that I'm going to talk about this morning. And the one truth is simply this. Worship is at the heart of the life of God's people. Worship is at the heart 
of God's people. What we do here each Lord's Day morning is not some appendage to our mission. It is the engine. It is the drive shaft of our mission. Of what God has called us to be. Yes, there are so many other things in Scripture. So many other definers of who we are to be as God's people. But at the center of it all is worship. Worship. 31 verses in Genesis are devoted to the creation of the world. 243 verses in the book of Exodus are devoted to the specifications for the tabernacle and for the worship of God. You see, worship is a priority. It has always been a priority for the life of God's people. Those of you who know the Scriptures may remember the story of Jesus. In John chapter 4, He meets a woman at a well. It's a very interesting conversation he has with this woman from Samaria. We'll have to unpack it at another time. But he says in John 3.23, the hour is coming and is now here when the worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. Isn't that an amazing thought? The Father is seeking worshipers to worship Him. Now, if I told you that Nate Hitchcock was seeking worshipers to worship Him, you'd have a problem with it. You'd accuse me of being arrogant, of conceited, of being egotistical. And yet, when God says, I want worshipers, It's so far from that. Because there is no greater thing for us to set our affections on. There is no greater thing for us to adore than the God of the universe. Worship is what we were created to do. It's what we were created to be. It's our purpose. It's our greatest joy. Everyone in this world, all of us, we set our gaze, we set our attention, we set our adoration on something. We are all worshipers. We either worship the one true God who alone deserves that adoration and that gaze, or we place our worship, we place our affection on something so far less. And so I want to talk about worship for a few minutes. Not extensively, this isn't a seminar on worship. I just want to talk about what Nehemiah 12 leads us to talk about concerning worship. The passage is not a a treatise on worship. It's not comprehensive in any stretch of the imagination, nor is everything that we find in Nehemiah chapter 12 normative for our worship. Meaning just because it's here doesn't mean that we are to do exactly as they did. But there is something to learn, I think. There is something to be reminded of 
as we are reminded that worship is at the heart of the life of God's people. So first, I want to talk. Kids, this is the first sub-point here in your notes. First, I want to talk about the necessity of worship. The necessity of worship. What is necessary for our worship? Let me give you some names. Barack Obama, Bill Gates, Pope Benedict XVI, Mark Zuckerberg, and the Dalai Lama. What do those five men have in common? Anybody know? Fame? More specifically than that, those five men are five men who are on Forbes' list entitled, The 70 That Matter. The 70 That Matter. It's kind of a weird list if you ask me. Because the poor guy who came out 71 in the voting, he doesn't matter. Doesn't matter at all. Just the 70. Forbes magazine, of course, is famous for such lists. There's a list of the world's richest, the 400 richest in America, the world's most powerful, the 100 most powerful women in the world, and we could go on and on. Those lists are interesting, and they unfortunately reveal something about our culture and about the kinds of things that our culture holds dear and true. Yet here we are in Nehemiah chapter 12 with a list of our own. Verses 1 through 26, all those names that I almost froze in the middle of because I was having such a hard time. Verses 1 through 26, depending upon you how, how you count them, we might say that these are the hundred who do matter. The hundred who really matter. Why do they matter? Why do they matter and who are they and, and what do they do? Well, simply put, these lists of names... These are the priests and the Levites of the people of God over the past hundred years. These are the men who have been called by God to minister in the temple, to offer sacrifices in the temple for the people of God. Being a priest, being a Levite, it wasn't a a calling. It wasn't something you applied for. It was something that you were born into. Priests were the sons of Aaron. Levites descended from Levi and were assistants to the priests and to temple worship. And we certainly could talk. We've looked at a lot of lists in Nehemiah. And we could talk about these men, these families individually. And we could talk about how the fact that that God lists these, He inscripturates these men and the names of their families, because each of them, just like the individual names in the Lamb's book of life, each of them matters. Each of them matters to God. We certainly could talk about how God knows and values each one of them. Like He knows and values each one of your names. But I don't think that's why they're here this morning. The point that I want us to see this morning is what they are as a whole, what they represent, 
You see, what the top 100 who matter represent is they represent God's faithfulness to the worship of His people, and they represent the seriousness with which God's people took worship. Simply put, if there is no priest, there is no worship. If there is no priest, there is no worship. And so this lengthy list of verses 1-26 through reminds us that worship always needs a mediator. Always needs a mediator. I love the Psalms. And, and David confesses in Psalm 24, The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and all those who dwell therein. For He has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the river. He casts this vision of God which is so majestic and, and so grandiose. And then He says, Who can ascend the hill of the Lord? Who shall stand in His holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart. See, clean hands and a, and a pure heart. There is a necessity for worship. And Nehemiah 12 reminds us this because if you look in your passage, if you have your Bibles open in verse 30, there was literal cleanliness going on. Literal purification was needed. It was always needed when the people of God approached a God of holiness, a God of absolute perfection. For generations upon generations, certain rituals were, were practiced whenever God was approached. And yet even that wasn't enough. For a time, it was sufficient. But it was never meant to be an end. Something better was always needed. Jesus warned the religious leaders of His day that though the outside of the cup was clean, it was the inside that mattered. Matthew 23, He says, You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and the plate that the outside may also be clean. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you are like whitewashed tombs which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and uncleanness. But how in the world do we make our insides clean? That's not something that we alone can do. That's not something that man in and of himself can do. And that's where Jesus comes in. That's where the Gospel comes in. You see, God is unapproachable in His holiness. But now there is a better way. And the book of Hebrews declares this better way. It declares Jesus. Hebrews chapter 1. In many ways and many times God spoke to the fathers by the prophets. In His last days, He has spoken to His Son. Spoken to us by His Son. And then it goes on to say, after making purification for sins, 
he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. And now because of this, 1 John 1, 9 is ours. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. What is necessary for worship? It's Jesus. Nehemiah 12 points us to Jesus. Let the necessity of Jesus reignite your hearts to worship this Jesus who has awakened you. This Jesus who has given you peace with God. This Jesus who has given you certain hope. This Jesus has died for you that you might be who you were created to be. And if you don't come through Jesus, then you don't come to God. And so do you know Him? Do you love Him? Do you adore Him? Do you long to come into His presence that He might know? Worship is at the heart of who you are. We need worship. We're born worshipers. We're made to worship. Will what we worship be worthy of our adoration? Well, that moves us to the second, the second thing about the heart of worship that I want us to see, and that's the purpose of worship. The purpose of worship. Simply put, it was all about God. It was all about God. It was for Him. It was about Him. It was guided by Him. Now this may seem obvious, but it isn't always so obvious. Sometimes we come out of our worship services and we ask, what did you think of worship today? And I, and I know kind of what we're thinking in terms of how smoothly went, things went. The leaders asked this question in terms of logistics. But you know, ultimately, it doesn't matter how you thought worship went. What matters is what did God think about our worship? Was God worship according to His Word and not according to the inventions of man? You see, all the things that they did in this passage as they had this grand celebration dedicating the wall, they did these things guided by His Word. The purification, the sacrifices were prescribed by Leviticus. The songs and the processions were prescribed by the Psalter. They worship God, not according to their own creative ways, but according to God and His design. And God's people came together that day to celebrate what God had done. Nehemiah wasn't uh, being presented a plaque or a key to the city, followed by a speech. No, this was about what God had accomplished. As verse 27 states, they came to celebrate. They came to give thanks. It's not about us. It's not how we feel. It's about Him, and it always will be about Him. And that's the picture we have in Revelation chapter 5. They sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to receive, to take the scrolls, 
and to open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed a people. See, worship each Lord's Day is an opportunity for us to remember, to recount, to reflect. And I'm not sure we do this enough. I know I don't do this enough. I shared with the elders the other night at our session meeting as we went around and talked about how the gospel was affecting us and ministering us. What was God doing in our lives? I confess that the Lord's been showing me how ungrateful I can be at times. Personally, in those times when I sinfully want things to get better, I forget that they don't need to get any better. They really don't. If I would just recount all of God's mercies, all of God's blessings, then I dare not ever battle with bitterness at my circumstances. And corporately, I want us to do this more. I, I want us to celebrate more, to recount more. And, and today, today, in fact, is an opportunity to do that very thing. Both Pastor Ed as well as Tim reminded me that today is the third Sunday in March. The third Sunday in March 2007 was the first official service of Cross Point Linwood. I wasn't here. But many of you were at Edmonds Community College in the Commons, I believe. Just like the people of Nehemiah's time, as they celebrated this wall, they thought back to, to all the opposition, to all the, the heartache. Their path has not been easy. Your path has not been easy. But they celebrated what God had done in their midst. And we can do the same as we remember, as we recount Celebration, thanksgiving, those are some of the purposes of our worship. But our passage shows us more. How about the nature of our worship? The nature of our worship. Just a couple things that should characterize our worship. Verse 20, 43 is really the central focal point of the passage. Verse 43, look with me. And they offered great sacrifices that day and rejoiced. For God had made them rejoice with great joy. The women and the children also rejoiced. And the joy of Jerusalem was heard far away. Did you hear that? Reverence, humility, awe, yes. But joy. Joy was, was a characterization of, of what they were about that day. And as we think about our own worship, as we think about coming before God, as we think about the necessity of Jesus and the Gospel in our worship, it's the Gospel that sets our worship apart from all other worships when you think about it. I mean, what other, worship, what other, what other houses of worship, false houses of worships, do people come to with joy? 
No, so much it's, it's fear. It's dread. It's obligation. It's duty. It's not joy. It's not grace. It's, am I good enough? Have I brought enough? Have I performed well enough? And yet grace and the Gospel, something completely different. It's our privilege. It's our pleasure to come before Him in joy. Also, I want you to just notice the the prominence of, of worship in the music of God's people here in this celebration. And we ask, is it just a cultural thing? Obviously, we have music in our worship. The Psalms are certainly full of songs and worship and musical instruments. And, and yet the Scriptures never let it go. The Scriptures never let music go. Even in the book of Revelation, they, they sing a new song to the Lord. There's something about us that we are hardwired for, for song, for for music, as a way of God communicating His grace to us. And, and Ephesians 5, as we sing to one another, as we hear one another, we address each other and encourage each other in song. Well, we need to quickly move from there. also want you to see that the worship was, and this is all under the nature of our worship, that worship was planned. It was planned for excellence. This was a production. I mean, there's no doubt about it. Nehemiah 12 was a production. Organized choirs, parade routes, nothing happened that wasn't planned. And I don't want to focus so much on the production. I want to focus on the planning. There was a lot that went into that day. And to a lesser degree, there was a lot that went into this day. And every Lord's day. There is study. There is prayer. There is song and Scripture selection. There is practice. There are logistics. Now why do I bring this up? Well, because sometimes I think that we buy into the lie that authentic worship is spontaneous, is unscripted. And we don't seem very spontaneous or unscripted here. We seem very Presbyterian, very orderly. Why do we do that? Well, we do what we do in order that we might do it with excellence, in order that we might reflect the One who is excellent and, and orderly. And you see, the Spirit of God does what He wants when we gather for worship. But His work doesn't begin at 9.59 a.m. It doesn't begin at 10.01 a.m. His work began in my office. It began in Peter's home. It began in Phil Proctor's 
home as they began to prayerfully consider what this Lord's Day held. It's a lot of preparation that went into today, just like in Nehemiah 12. And, and, and why do I bring that up? Well, to turn it on you now and say, what preparations have you made for coming into the house of God? What effort are you putting in to this central focal point of our life together, to the heart of what we're about? I'm not talking about just serving. That was last week. But I'm talking about preparing for the Lord's Day. Well, finally, one last thing, real, real briefly. The witness of worship. The witness of worship. The last thing I want you to see from Nehemiah 12 about the heart of the worship of God's people is the witness of worship. I suspect many of you have had that experience with the noisy neighbors where you were getting ready to call the cops to shut that party down. Israel's neighbors were ready to shut the party down because the joy of Jerusalem was reverberating throughout. The processing choirs, the voices singing, the cymbals crashing, these were the sights and the sounds. These were the corporate testimony that God, that the God of Israel was alive. That the God of Israel was worthy of praise. That the God of Israel was worthy to be shouted from the, wall, from the top of the walls. Psalm 126 speaks of this. The psalmist writes, When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those in a dream. Then our mouth was filled with laughter, our tongue with shouts of joy, and they said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. Indeed, the Lord has done great things for us. And He calls us now, He reminds us to celebrate with joy, with thanksgiving through, through Jesus, the one mediator between God and man. We won't be heard outside of these walls. Pretty confident that the gym will hold our sound in here. But our prayer is that some will come with us inside these walls and hear what we have to say and hear what we have to sing. And for those that don't, may, may what we do in here for an hour and a half on Sunday morning reverberate as we go to our workplaces, as we go to our neighborhoods, that those around us might say, wow, Jesus has done great things for them. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we confess again that You have done great things for us. And Father, it is a privilege to gather as those whom You redeemed, as those with different stories and yet are united by one story. One story to sing of, to speak of, to rejoice in. Oh Father, make us a people of worship. That the joy of ascension might be heard 
in all our communities that the name and the fame of Jesus might be understood. Father, the Gospel is such good news. May that joy and those promises find deep root in our heart this day, we pray. In Jesus' name, Amen.